Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I am joined today by ProPublica's Dara Lind. Yo. And Vox Policy reporter Jerusalem Dempsis. Hey there. And our discussion today is actually sparked by a recent piece uh, from Jerusalem, which is about the perpetually contentious issue of rent control. So policies that get called rent control can vary a lot from city to city, but The basic idea is that landlords are not allowed to raise rents by more than a certain percentage or amount from year to year. Um, That has an obvious appeal to renters who make up the majority of the population in a lot of cities like D.C., Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco. But there have long been two big arguments against rent control. One is that a lot of rent control systems only apply to some apartments. So some of the population benefits from cheap rent controlled apartments while everyone else is kind of screwed. You haven't really known frustration as an emotion until you've heard someone with a rent control place in New York City talking about how they only pay $1,300 a month for a two-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side. But there are people who who get that, and then everyone else is paying like four or five grand. The second somewhat more serious argument against rent control is that it makes it unprofitable for developers and landlords to build and offer rental housing. Uh, That can shrink supply, uh, which leads to a shortage of housing and higher rents outside the rent control system. Um, And so economists as a group loathe rent control for this this basic reason. Um, There's a famous quote uh, from the economist Osser Lindbeck, who I'm sure has done a a lot of interesting work, but I've I've only ever heard this quote from him, (laughs) Um, that rent control is the most efficient technique presently known to destroy a city except for bombing. And so, Jerusalem, in your article on rent control, you say that you have learned to love the bombs. Um, so how, how did you get on board? Yeah. I mean, uh, first of all, I just needed to make a Dr. Strangelove reference. That's why I wrote this entire article, actually. Sure. Um, I mean, commitment to the but, bit, very uh, strong. In, exactly. <laughs> in, in reality, there's like a few things going on. One is that 
there is a really big problem with renting and in its viability as an alternative to home ownership and that there's like no way for people to have a stable future in renting or know that they have a stable future in renting. You don't know whether your landlord's going to need to sell that property. If you're a homeowner and, you know, uh, your area becomes really in high demand, that means you've become richer because your house has increased in value. If you're a renter, it means like your rent's going to go up and it's going to be a really bad thing for you, um, even if there are increased amenities in your area that you might be able to take advantage of. And so, you know, there's this large problem which people have not really put a lot of effort into solving, um, or policymakers, I should say, have not put a lot of effort into solving, which is that renting is not something that is a viable alternative to homeownership, even though a large proportion of the country cannot afford to own a home in the place where they would need to in order to have the kind of life, good jobs, near family, near friends, et cetera, that they're looking for. So that's one thing that I've been thinking about a lot. And the second thing I've been thinking about a lot is what the actual purpose of rent control is. Often it's obviously thought of as like, okay, rent is too expensive. We need to fix the problem that it's too costly to afford housing. Let's impose rent control. But in my opinion, I think that like the actual thing that, you know, rent control can do is it provides a stabilization mechanism. It does not actually affect the cost of housing. You know what I mean? Like it's going to cost a lot to build housing in New York City, in, uh, in in San Francisco, in Los Angeles. And, you know, we can talk about all of the ways that we can bring down the cost of housing there. But this is a secondary thing that we're trying to solve for, which is stabilizing the ability for people to stay in their communities, especially if we are, you know, to ensure against future rapid increases in the price of uh, of housing. And, you know, historically in the United States, like rent control was successful as a stabilization policy. Obviously, there were massive other costs associated with this, which we can talk about and the types of policy designed to, to avert those costs. But like following World War II, um, rent controls were imposed across the United States and across a lot of Europe as well, um, especially as uh, there was uh, a lot of soldiers returning. People were afraid that that increased uh, demand boom was also going to create a big problem and rent controls were introduced. And a lot of places ended up kind of like graduating out of rent controls because they built their way out of rent controls. It became no longer relevant um, to have those because you were able to have a massive building boom across the United States. So I think that that's the big thing that I've been thinking about a lot is like, what can rent control do and what can it do among a series of policies that actually try to address the cost problem? So, I mean, the kind of among a series of policies is definitely, I think, a lot of, you know, the actual architecture of your argument, Jerusalem, because a lot of what you're saying is that, you know, there's the argument that because rent control has never really been like thought of in a way beyond economic theory that we don't have a ton of empirical data on it, right? Like you make the comparison to minimum wage laws where in theory, you know, economic orthodoxy said this is going to be really, really terrible. It's going to result in fewer jobs. And then like once somebody actually did the empirical legwork, it flipped a lot of economists over. And, you are you know, because there hasn't been that equivalent of work on rent control, like the possibility is there. But the other thing about this existing in the realm of theory is that it isn't being considered as part of a robust policy regime. And, you know, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about what does a better rent control agenda look like? I think that this is probably a good time to kind of distinguish between um, the types of rent control that have been done in the past and the ones that I think um, people who are who are interested and serious about implementing these types of policies in the future actually want it to look like. So in the past, these kinds of rent craps were like, it's basically a rent freeze. It was a freeze on the price of rent. It, landlord at that point, like the value of their asset was basically like, 
diminished quite significantly and they thought it was going to happen in perpetuity for the future. And, uh, you know, it was a very stringent policy. It was not something that was like a slow build or anything like that. So in recent years, people have been reconceiving of these rent control policies um, under the term of second generation rent controls. And there are various things that can go along with this. One is to allow, A, to exempt future construction, of course, because you wouldn't want to make it more, you wouldn't want to increase the cost of of, uh, uh, building new homes. And also because the goal of rent control is to it's not about future tenants, about stabilization for current tenants who might be who need to be insured against the changes in their community. The second thing is re- these rent control policies uh, should be tied to inflation and that there should be some moderate sum that landlords are able to raise rents by in order to continue making it the viable business opportunity for them so that we don't get that kind of reduction in investment in the property. One of the big things that we see in the cost of rent control um, that economists have found is that when you reduce the value of the property, we see reductions in investments in maintenance and taking care of the property from landlords. Um, and, uh, you know, that is really bad if your housing stock just starts to deteriorate, not just because that's like not nice to look at, but because it has like health and safety implications for tenants. And of course, there are economic uh, issues with blight if your entire neighborhoods are kind of crumbling to the ground and like there's no one trying to be invested in the maintenance of that property. So there's a lot that you need to do there to make sure that these rent control policies can work. But um, to, more to your point, Dara, about the kind of the constellation of policies that would need to exist in order for this to work is that, you know, rent control does not, as I said, actually address the core problem of why people are so upset about rising rents. What we have is that uh, there's a massive shortage of affordable housing in this country and just all housing, including market rate housing, in um, especially in our high demand cities. And in order to fix that problem, you're going to have to build more housing in order to get out of, of this trap that we've put ourselves into. And I think that this is why I actually became more convinced of the argument for rent control is because I've just been so steeped at this point in like the evidence for why we have a shortage, which is that these the, the controlling and limiting factor are these zoning laws, are these limitations on building, are these local regulations and veto points that we've allowed um, people to have and especially homeowners to have in order to stop the um, increased uh, building of affordable and market rate housing. And, you know, Yes, it is theoretically true that you are reducing the incentive to build a little bit with any kind of rent stabilization policy, but that's not the limiting factor. If I like instituted some kind of rent control thing in New York City and then also said you can build anything you want in New York City tomorrow, the massive profit incentive that to develop New York City land would be so outweighing the value uh, a decline in the rent control policy. So I think it's it's really important to think of this and conceive of this problem as something that is being done in tandem with addressing the cost problem. One aspect of this sort of new consensus around rent control that you're describing that's that's kind of interesting and curious to me is the, the exclusion of new construction. And I totally understand the rationale for that, that as, as you were saying, if it reduces the profitability of new apartment building construction, if there are, there are sharp limits on how much you can charge for rent, um, and it doesn't seem as relevant to stabilizing specific communities. But that's also exactly why you see the kind of sort of politics and griping around rent control that you see in cities like D.C. and New York. Uh, D.C., for instance, which uh, I'd mentioned just because I live there and know it a little better, all buildings before 1976 uh, are subject to uh, apartment rent control laws. But we've had 40 plus years of of uh, new construction since then. And so you have this, this shrinking subset of people who have these sort of like holy grail rent control departments and a growing section of, of people who are competing over the, the market rate, non-controlled apartments. And I think 
the dynamics here are, are particularly harsh in New York, where you saw very drastic disparities between rent-controlled and non-controlled apartments. And there's such a housing scarcity there that complaints of, of horizontal inequality, that people of the same sort of income, same life status, might be treated radically differently based on whether they happen to have a rent-controlled apartment, seem to prop up. And, and like, it's, I don't think it's the biggest problem in the world, but it does seem like genuinely unfair <laughs> um, to, that some people are paying like a quarter of what other people are paying for the same same apartment, um, and and moreover are doing that not because they're poorer. Um, they're they're doing it because they've been there longer, or they finagled the system so that they can benefit from rent control despite not having been there longer. Um, so and like I'm, not I'm for nothing, you... given American history and given the relationship between the wealth gap and housing wealth in particular, like that has historically meant that the white families that got to benefit from the post-war welfare state now get to pay less in rent because they've had that apartment in their, you know, in their possession for a while more than the black families that were getting zoned out of places to begin with. Right. I I visited a a now past uh, R.I.P. Mara, great great aunt of my wife's, uh, who had a rent controlled apartment by the Empire State Building that was like three bedrooms and four hundred dollars a month, um, and and she has had it, she had had it since the fifties. And yeah, if she was a black woman, she would not have had that apartment. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a real problem. And I think that it, a this is why these kinds of policies, are, it just really comes down to policy design, implementation, and the kind of bureaucracy you're able to build around controlling this. And also, I think that, you know, it, it, it obviously is the case that there are going to be... Um, uh, I think I think often like when people are kind of contesting these kinds of rent control things, they say that there's a massive distributional issues. There's distributional issues, but who's able to benefit from the rent controlled apartments? I would also like to say that there's massive distributional issues with the current way <laughs> that people are able to allocate <laughs> uh, with via price um, around apartments as well. If you just said only rich people are able to afford to live here, that also has distributional issues around race and around class and all these things that we care about. So obviously, we were trying to evaluate between these two worlds where uh, you know some of these people at least are likely to be less well off than the people who are uh, just the richest people who would be able to afford to live near the Empire State Building. Obviously, it is the case that there are going to be some proportion of people who are rich who could afford to be paying the the market rate rent who are going to be able to take advantage of this policy. And that seems like bad to me. And also there are ways to make sure this isn't a long term issue by, for instance, you know, making sure that you are allowed to raise the rents <laughs> by inflation and by some other moderate sum as well. So they're not just like completely taking advantage. But it is actually not that big or top of mind concern to me that um, some property owners on the Upper East Side are making a little bit less um, money than they would otherwise made. I think that it is an issue that we can get to. But in, when I'm ordinarily ranking all the issues I have with the housing market, that's like probably not in the top 20. And, you know, I think that a lot of the economics minded people are going to, to cringe at is that like people have a very reflexive feeling within economics that price is the best sorting mechanism for allocating goods and services. And obviously people have, you know, amended that, especially in, in recent years as economics has become more um, liberal discipline, that there are ways that you should be kind of uh, creating some kind of distributional policies to make sure that it's not just around who's the richest person, that we're trying to do some kind of maximization of other other goods. And I think that this is one way that you can actually achieve that benefit. Um, I think that one other thing that people have often talked about is, okay, well, why don't we just, you know, if we're, if we're actually just in, in, uh, trying to make people better off um, who are lower income, why don't we just, you know, increase all these other um, rental vouchers? Why don't we like, universalize rental vouchers so every low income renter, for instance, is able to have, you know, the kind of money they would need in order to afford a um, 
rent. So the, the issue here is a couple of things. One is that under scarcity, right, if you just give a bunch of people a ton of money, um, you're just going to inflate rent. That's what we see. There's a bunch of studies that show that when you increase the amount of um, rental vouchers in a city where there is a housing scarcity issue, you actually make a lot of people worse off as well. So this is not an ambiguously good policy um, change to do. Um, and I think also it doesn't really address still the core problem that we're talking about here, which is that there are uh, it is really important as we try to a- attack the problem of supply to have some sort of mechanism for ensuring that the people who are in communities right now who are lower income, who are um, somehow more, uh, you know, uh, precarious, financially precarious in some way, are able to have some level of stability in their communities. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the politi- politics of this um, soon. But it is it is, it is, is really bad that the only way that we conceive of integrating um, in our cities and across the United States is a, is a quite a really stressful process for the most disadvantaged people in that community. Gentrification has basically become like a situation where like people aren't like, yay, more public and private investment in my neighborhood. I'm going to get traffic calming. I'm going to get like stop signs in my neighborhood to make me more safe. I'm going to have, you know, a Whole Foods near me or I'm going to have these new amenities that I can enjoy. It's, oh no, I am terrified that someone is going to put a stop sign in my neighborhood because that means rents could rise and be priced out. And that has like really bad effects yeah. <laughs> um, both politically mm-hmm. and policy-wise if people are opposing life-saving measures like, uh, like, like traffic stops and things like that. And so I think that we need to be more serious about how we're going to allow for a more stable transition, especially as we're trying to integrate neighborhoods in, in the United States. Before we kind of get to the the coalitional politics here that you're that you're hinting at, I really liked your reference to kind of when you're ordinarily ranking your problems, because it does seem that there's a certain amount of like, you know, that your article, which, you know, obviously, like everyone who's listening to this needs to read, lays out, you know, a kind of series of, yes, this is an ec- this this is a downside concern of rent control. And here are the policy steps that would address it. And I'd kind of like you to kind of briefly go through where you think those rank in terms of how much of a deal breaker having those or not would be for like true, you know, truly equitable rent control has never been tried. Is it really just a matter of if you create a pro-housing policy that is going to result in the increase of supply, then you can implement, you know, nouveau rent controls without a whole lot of equity concerns? Or are there, you know, some of the other things you mentioned in your article, including like oversight, procedural protections, that kind of thing, are those really essential to the functioning of any rent control policy, regardless of supply? I think what I'd say here is there's a myriad of concerns people have with rent control that end up not actually being about rent control, but about another problem <laughs> in the rental market. For instance, you have this issue where if you institute rent control um, in some ways, it might you might be uh, incentivizing landlords to um, get rid of their tenants so that they can either convert those units to condos. Maybe they can, if you've uh, designed your rent control policy such that it's an individual who has that rent control that you want to get that individual person out so you can get a non-rent controlled individual into that apartment, or perhaps they want to get some someone out so they can renovate the apartment and uh, um, raise rents anyway. So there's there's a lot of incentive to um, potentially push out uh, tenants out of their apartments. The problem with this is not just that, that the incentive exists. The problem is that we've constructed a rental system where there's absolutely no oversight such that tenants can feel like their landlord could just push them out for no reason. And there's like a bunch of different ways you can address this problem. Of course, one of them is just cause eviction statutes. Um, it should require the 
landlord to be able to say very clearly why they are evicting you um, <laughs> to a neutral third party before they can just say you have to leave. I mean, over the last year, even during under an eviction moratorium where it was illegal for people to be evicted, we we're hearing stories of people being locked out of their apartments, which is illegal. If you've signed a lease, that's just you're not legally allowed to be locked out of your apartment um, without some sort of uh, fair legal process. We heard stories of like te uh, tenants being so scared of an eviction showing up on their record that they just left when a landlord threatened them with eviction, even though they likely would have won any kind of case. Stuff like this is happening and that's we should address that specific problem, which is going to require a lot more oversight and regulation of what it means for someone to be allowed to be kicked out of their home. Um, so I think that's really important. Uh, a lot of people have also suggested a right to counsel, which, you know, most people, I mean, there are studies where 90% of tenants in an, in an area uh, are not actually um, represented by counsel. And landlords overwhelmingly are represented by counsel. And you go show up to these eviction courts. And if you've read Evicted by Matthew Desmond, he, he walks through what he's witnessing in Milwaukee. Um, and it is essentially just people being steamrolled, having no idea of the law, judges not even having the time and often not even the inclination to care about what the effect of this policy is going to be on tenants. So things like that are really problematic and we should solve those issues. But that's not the problem with rent control. Like that, The problem with that was that we're not regulating properly our rental markets. And the last thing I kind of suggest is, uh, is a rental registry, which is this idea of like in the same way that we uh, the government tracks businesses because you have to pay taxes on businesses. It should probably keep in track of like <laughs> property managers and landlords and just like, hey, like, how many tenants do you have there? How much are you charging them? And just basic information that, A, we should already have if they're legally paying their taxes, but B, would allow for um, cities and for states to make sure that no one is like having a new tenant every single month and they can come in and say, hey, what's going on here? Like, what are you doing that's that's causing this problem? Because that's what we need to recognize is that this is not a normal market. Like, buying hats or whatever like if your hat maker is like kind of a jerk to you and like doesn't send you the right one and you have this problem with them like that's not like life-threatening if your house is something that you can be kicked out of or you cannot have the things that you need for basic security and shelter like that has massive not just personal costs to you but like massive public costs we've just watched this during the pandemic and the public health costs of people being evicted has been shown to be pretty high like people can increase transmission there's also problems with schooling kids are like unable to attend their classes especially as they're like having to deal with just like, the mental stress of that, but also just because they're like potentially homeless or bouncing around from family member to family member. So like these things are really bad and we should be keeping track of them at the very minimal level of just like who is being rented to, where they're being rented to and what is the rent should be like known by every single um, city official. So we should take a, a break soon, but I, I wanted to ask you about this one paper that you engage with in your in your article, since it seems to be some of the best evidence that we have uh, to date on rent control. Um, this is uh, Rebecca Diamond, Tim McQuaid, and, and Franklin Keon's paper on on rent control in San Francisco. And when it came out, most of the coverage of it, and this is certainly how I read it, was was this kind of damning to rent control and suggesting it did all the things that the critics have always said it does, that it, it reduces uh, the supply of rental housing, it lowers displacement, as you as you emphasize, but by reducing the supply of rental housing probably drove up rents in the long run and might have of uh, fueled gentrification in, in San Francisco. So just so I understand where you're coming from, is your view like that's all true, but the magnitudes are such that we can accommodate that in a more expansive suite of housing policies? Um, or do you not really like buy that the effects are that large on, on housing supply? Yeah. So just to put some numbers on it, they basically find that 
the rent control made beneficiaries 10 to 20 percent more likely to remain in their homes in the medium to long term than tenants who weren't covered by rent control. They also find that the effects of rent control on tenants are stronger for racial minorities, suggesting that rent control helped prevent minority displacement from San Francisco. On the other hand, and this is like the thing that was like very concerning when they when they came out with their paper, um, they find that it reduced the availability of rental housing by 15 percent, most notably by inducing condo conversion. So landlords were just converting over to condos, getting out of rent control business entirely. And they were able to just kind of like sell um, these condos instead and, and make their money that way. So, you know, I... I, th- I think the paper is really well done. I don't have any personal problems with what the with the findings that they have or anything like that. Um, I, I think that there are a few things. One is that the problem in San Francisco, again, and I said this earlier in the episode, the problem in San Francisco is not this rent control policy. The problem in San Francisco is I just like spent like three days there is that there's like no tall buildings. <laughs> there's like no a multi, like there's they so little the multi-family housing. <laughs> I mean, I genuinely was like walking around and it's truly like just being in a suburban Maryland neighborhood in so much of this city it like is mind-boggling to me and like the issue is that a lot of people want to live in san francisco and san francisco is refusing to build enough housing for them and i think that this is why the devil is so much in the details with this with kind of policies is that you have to make sure that the net effect of the housing policies you institute is still making it really profitable to build a ton of market rate housing. And that is really the the thing that, you know, I think economists need to get involved in the design of as because, you know, where I start this article is with this information from uh, um, Suleiman Osman's book, The Invention of Brownstone Brooklyn, which he talks about how New York City's history of rent control can be explained in part because, quote, a large number of white professional renters gave the tenants movement muscle unmatched in other cities. And Higher income professionals who are being renters for longer is a relatively new phenomenon in American history. Most of the time, if you're a higher income person, you were able to buy a house like relatively quickly. But we're seeing in these like um, big East Coast cities and West Coast cities that there are a higher proportion of us who are renting for a longer period of our lives and who are now engaged in rental advocacy or concerns about the rising cost of rents in a way that has not been seen previously in American um, urban uh, politics. And the reason why this is important is because, you know, I think that like, yes, I, I think there are some very serious concerns that Diamond's paper raises, but I think that we need to understand that this is going to happen. There's going to be some sort of rental control or stabilization policy that is going to be demanded by this growing electorate. And if like economists don't come in and say, hey, let's just do it this better way or institute it along with X, it's going to be the worst possible version of these policies. And I, I think that's part of the, a, a big reason why I wrote this article. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk sort of about the, the politics of rent control in addition to the policy. So uh, stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. 
That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. We're back. So, Jerusalem, you're clear that that you only think rent control works in conjunction with these sort of countervailing policies that boost housing supply, stuff like zoning reform, expedited permitting, lowering parking requirements, stuff like that. And in a vacuum, we, we talked about some evidence that suggests that it, it could reduce housing supply. And my question is, is if there's a coalition out there that could stitch together things that boost housing supply with rent control the way that you're suggesting. So a lot of what you see in, in places like California is this kind of implicit alliance between wealthy homeowners uh, who don't want new housing because it hurts their property values and self-styled progressives and tenant advocates who fight development that they think leads to displacement. And the latter group tends to focus a lot of rent control and and also fights really hard against efforts to expand housing supply uh, from people like Scott Wiener and, and Buffy Wicks who want to sort of make it easier to get legal permission to, to build multifamily housing in California. So how do you get the left, which... It is nationally not that powerful, but can be quite powerful in liberal cities like San Francisco and New York. How do you get them on board with increasing supply in addition to rent control as opposed to as an alternative to rent control? I think that you kind of just hit the nail on the head here is that we're specifically talking about, and I, I want to be clear here for people who have not potentially read the article, that this is, I'm, I'm particularly talking about these high cost cities where the demand is very, very high and supply constraints are not being determined by the value of developing that land. It's just by the laws that are reducing the ability for people to develop it. So in these cities that we're talking about here, these are like overwhelmingly democratic cities. Like these are places where like, I mean, Joe Biden could have gotten more than 90% of the vote in certain precincts. And and so this is a very much an intra-left conversation that we're having when we're discussing what to do with housing policy in these places. We're talking about people who almost entirely voted for Joe Biden and then like some small subset of that, which consider themselves very progressive, some subset of that, which consider themselves potentially socialist or communist or abolitionist or things like that, which are very, very far left. And it normally like these are not really, or as, as Dylan has said, is like not really important important in the political conversation when you're thinking about bargaining chips because they don't have a lot of political power. But especially when we're talking about housing, this has been relatively an elite-driven conversation around zoning reform. You do not walk up to random people on the street and see them like, you know, <laughs> talking about minimum lot sizes or <laughs> setbacks or things like that. And so because of that, I mean, most of the conversation is really, really dominated by a very few handful of groups, even in places like San Francisco, where the problem has gotten pretty bad. Um, you don't talk about land use reform and things like that in um, normal political communications. So 
I think the reason why it's so possible to create some sort of elite consensus around a basket of housing policies is because this isn't really a mass like persuasion effort that needs to be done. It just needs to be like getting these groups together in like at a table and like just saying like, let's like just hash this out, which I think is like, you know, in a place like San Francisco, maybe, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not the easiest thing to do. But the incentives, I think, are actually quite aligned here because often what we're hearing from these further left groups is that um, the pro housing people, the people who are just trying to upzone, who are trying to make it easier to build in particular market rate housing are not caring enough about the displacement effects uh, on, that they're having on these communities. So we, we had a slight hiccup where Jerusalem's recorder died, but we have her back on, on an advanced technology called a phone. So Jerusalem, you're there? Yes, I'm here via voice memo. Shout out to Steve Jobs. Thank you. RIP. RIP to a real one. <laughs> I want to make sure, Jerusalem, that I am representing this aspect of your argument correctly and like not strawmanning it. It sounds like you're saying that because this is you know, an, an intra-left discussion and because it's a discussion among people who are both A, like highly ideologically identified and B, already very like mobilized and interested in politics, that this intellectual, you know, policy-centric, these policies will hang together and lead to the kind of world we want argument is going to be successful at getting everyone on board in a way that it might not in more like culture war sort of scenario. Yes? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's getting everyone on board, but I think it is getting a sufficient number of people on board in order to kind of push the politics in the way that we're talking about here. I think that, like, you can just see with the politics of zoning reform at all that, I mean, what has happened over the last few years is not that there's been a mass persuasion effort of people to care about duplexes um, in California. What has happened is that there's been, like, an intellectual push both from, uh, 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 you know, just a bevy of studies from economists, from social scientists, et cetera, political scientists, talking very clearly about the costs of zoning um, on people's wages, on people's, um, you know, labor market mobility and things like that. And in conjunction with that, a group of uh, highly educated renters, especially in California, who have been pushing for um, in making sure that democratic policymakers in their state are taking this very seriously. And now you have a situation where the Council of Economic Advisors from President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors um, for, uh, uh, and, you know, a bunch of people at the Department of Housing and Urban Development all are relatively clearly aligned on how bad this policy is. And that was almost entirely just an elite-driven phenomenon of people saying, this is bad, here's a bunch of research why it's bad, and we should stop doing this. Um, we obviously haven't gotten the kind of policy change necessary to really fully address this problem. But like, I mean, I don't think I've seen such a, a quick shift around uh, a really major topic uh, happen in, you know, in anything that I've looked at. So the reason that I'm a little bit skeptical of like the validity of moving from elite consensus to policy change on this is that there aren't a lot of scenarios in which you can reliably expect like a critical mass of people who have not been politically engaged to start getting politically engaged. But interacting with things that are outside the realm of politics for most people, like the, you know, character of their neighborhood is something that is likely to intervene in, like politically in people's lives who don't consider themselves political beings. And like, it does seem and I'm sure that I'm over-indexing on immigration here because it's me, but like, it seems that there is a, you know, you can call it like aesthetic, you can call it emotional, you can call it pre-ideological sense of if I value where I live, 
then of course it is incumbent upon me to oppose changes to that because like this is something that has given me value and that I care about and I'm invested in. And so I wonder a little bit if you're kind of looking at the people who are currently showing up to housing board meetings and looking at them and going, we can stitch everyone who's in the room together right now around this agenda and not necessarily thinking about what you're going to say to the people who aren't showing up to board meetings right now, but the minute there is a proposal that is going to, you know, double the amount of housing in their neighborhood are going to show up and say, what do you have against the neighborhood to which I owe my life and the lives of my neighbors? Yeah. I mean, I would say two things. One is that this is just a problem with attempting to tackle the zoning problem at all, regardless of how you do it. I think there is this concern and worry. So I, I, I agree with you. It is a problem that people will need to take really seriously. The second thing is I'm, I'm relatively skeptical that people really are going to pay attention to this enough at the zoning board level. What we saw over the pandemic, there was, there's this good research by, um, uh, these Boston University professors, um, Catherine Einstein, um, David Glick, Maxwell Palmer that looks at the, um, this, the unrepresentativeness of people who show up at these uh, um, zoning board meetings, they find that they're overwhelmingly homeowners, they're overwhelmingly older, um, and they are overwhelming. And, and, and uh, other researchers show that they're more opposed to new housing than the average person in the community would be. They do the secondary research during the pandemic, as a lot of these meetings have moved to Zoom, and to see if this has changed at all the composition of people who show up to zoning meetings. And they don't find that it really changes anything. If, if anything, they find that it's slightly more unrepresentative. What this indicates to me is that there's just a certain set of people that are going to show up to these types of meetings and you can make it like so easy. You can make it like you just click a button to show up. You can make it that it is more relevant to the political conversation than ever. But just like some people are just like not going to show up to a zoning meeting. And like, I think that that's actually the vast majority of people who are just not interested in engaging in politics that way. And so I just think that like, you know, you're right. There's like probably some increased number that could happen, especially if this could get weaponized in a way we've seen um, Tucker Carlson, for instance, do a couple of short segments on how Democrats are trying to destroy your single family neighborhood. But I, I think I would also say this is an indictment on the kind of participatory democracy that we've pursued in this space in that we've said that the way that we're going to decide how people can live, uh, where people can live and what types of homes are allowed to exist is based on like who shows up to scream the loudest at a zoning board meeting. And so to me, it's like we need to just have massive more reforms to make it such that this is a more representative process and not a situation where it is about who shows up to these meetings because that should be like less relevant to me. Yeah, I, I, you alluded to this, but so much of this is about whose interests get get included, right? Um, and there's part of the case for doing some of these reforms at the state level as opposed to at the city level is that part of what we want to say about a city like New York or, or San Francisco is that people have the right to move there, that there are a lot of good jobs, high-paying jobs in those areas. It's very desirable to live there. People should be able to move in relatively freely and at relatively affordable cost if they decide that that's, that's what works for them and their family. And so if those are people whose interests we want to take into account, the political system of cities is not built to bring them into account. They do not get a vote in a city they do not yet live in, but they do get a vote in a state. And so if you're someone in Fresno or Sacramento or, yeah, if you're a ladybird um, and you, <laughs> you want to move to San Francisco – like maybe you deserve a vote in 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 how much it should cost to uh to live in a place like San Francisco and the way that that happens is by changing the level of government that you're making these policies at 
And I would even add to that to say that, like, it's not just whether or not you live in, in that state that should matter. Like, what economists have found is that these zoning laws have reduced the GDP of the entire country. Um, they found that it's reduced by thousands of dollars the average wages a worker would have earned if these laws had not existed. So I think it is something where, you know, the federal government and even, you know, state governments to some extent are primed to care about large macroeconomic trends because that's how uh, voters will often evaluate their ability to do their jobs well. But like, city officials and like local officials are not evaluated that way. Like no one goes like, yeah, I'm blaming like, you know, my San Francisco supervisor or like my mayor for the fact that there isn't like, you know, the gas prices aren't higher or whatever. Not that, you know, you should be blaming anyone in particular <laughs> for that. But uh, that's just not how people engage with these politics. They think about those people as having done their jobs if they, you know, if the potholes are fixed, if there's like, you know, maybe crime is lower or like police are funded well, or like whatever it is that like is very specific and local to your area, such that like these local officials are completely insulated from the effects of their actions on the larger economy, despite the fact that we now have a ton of research that what laws are put in place in Los Angeles, in Seattle, in New York City, in Washington, D.C., have massive effects on the rest of the country and that we cannot conceive of this as just being a local problem anymore. And I think I would say this, too, in, in addition to the thing, um, Dara, you mentioned earlier about, about whether the politics of the circle could actually line up if people get activated. There was a recent poll um, of Los Angeles residents around SB9 and SB10, which are recent laws enacted in California to uh, make it easier to build things like duplexes and quadplexes across the state. Um, and they find that there is support across the board for these policies. And Los Angeles is known as like probably one of the most NIMBY cities <laughs> in, in America. And it's known for this and, and its supervisor board and its uh, city council is, is extremely opposed to new housing development. I mean, they passed a like $1 billion affordable housing bond program. And like almost none of that has been spent whatsoever because NIMBYs just continuously delay or stop the ability for anyone to build affordable housing in their neighborhoods. And Yet at the same time, what we're seeing is that there's actually massive mismatch between what people think the residents of, of, of Los Angeles believe and what is actually true about their preferences. And so I would say that it, it is it is likely the case that um, there's a much larger consensus of people that are fine with more housing than those who are opposed to it. We're uh, going to take one more break. But when we come back, uh, we're talking about a hot topic that I know all of you have been waiting for us to tackle. We've seen your emails. We've seen your tweets. So we're finally doing it. The Demographic Revolution in 18th Century France. And we're back. Our white paper this week is actually a job market paper from a uh, Brown econ grad student named Guillaume Blanc. Uh, if anyone listening to this is hiring in econ departments, uh, be sure to read it. He's on the market. And the paper is about what social scientists call the demographic transition. So just to back up a little bit, for most of human history, we had a lot of babies and we died a lot. Uh, and that was basically what we did uh, for, like, hundreds of thousands of years. And our populations couldn't grow by much because they were limited by how much food was available, either sort of what we could hunt and gather or later what we could cultivate using very primitive farming technology. So if population rose in an area, you'd get a food shortage, lots of people would die, and then you'd get back to where you started. There was kind of a, a carrying capacity limit the way there is with a lot of animals. Then, around the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, better health care, better access to food meant that fertility began to outstrip deaths in many countries, which enabled the population to grow uh, in a, a big, sustained way for the first time. And sometime after that transition happened, the next step in the demographic transition happened, which is that parents began having fewer children. 
um, and that tempered the rapid growth in population, but also meant that per capita incomes began rising dramatically over time. You had more access to food, industrialization was starting, and because people were not having as many kids as they had before, uh, you could share more wealth among fewer people. So Guillaume Blanc's paper is on that last part of the, the falling fertility, which enables per capita incomes to rise. And he focuses on France, where fertility was actually falling in the mid-18th century, uh, which, as he mentions in the paper, is more than a century before it fell in any other country. So France is kind of at the, at the bleeding edge of the demographic transition. And Blanc argues that the fall in fertility is because of secularization and growing rejection of the Catholic Church, reducing the power of like religious arguments uh, to have more kids. Um, and the data he uses to, to argue this, I think, is really cool. So he has a measure of how secular a district of France is uh, that I think is really clever and, and historically kind of fun. So if you've read about the French Revolution, you might remember that in uh, 1790, in the very early stages of the revolution, uh, the National Assembly, which was originally convened by the king to make some budgetary decisions, but had by this point wildly exceeded its mandate and become the de facto government of France, passed a law making the Catholic Church subordinate to the government of France. And it required all priests to take a loyalty oath to the state above all foreign entities, including the Vatican. And many priests, uh, called refractory priests, uh, refused to take this oath. They maintained loyalty to the Vatican. So Blanc uses the share of refractory priests in an area as a measure of how religious or secular that area of France is. The idea is that more devout areas would have priests who are more willing to stand with the Pope against the French Revolution. And those areas, sure enough, didn't see fertility fall as much as areas where priests pledged fealty to the French state. And that sort of supports his case that what's happening with fertility in this demographic transition is about secularization. So that was a lot of stuff. But what did you guys make of this paper? So I have like enough of an idiot question that I have to ask it first at the risk of making myself look Do like it. the doofus that I am. Something that has always uh, seemed a little bit chicken and eggy on the demographic transition, and this is like probably actually solved in the literature, I just don't know it, is was it that lower fertility allowed for lower mortality because of the Malthusian trap? Or was it that lower mortality allowed for lower fertility because you didn't have to force women to spend so much of their childbearing age in like active childbearing in order to achieve replacement for, you know, it's like sufficient, you know, children working on the farm and replacement fertility. And the reason that this strikes me as particularly relevant here is that if the argument being made by this paper is that the lack of cultural pressure to have more children resulted in the demographic transition. That's implicitly very strongly on the lower fertility leads to lower mortality rather than vice versa. But there's also an interpretation because religion is so tied in, especially in like pre-modern and early modern Europe with the fear of death, which is something that the author actually talks to with regards to the religiosity of wills over this period being another factor in secularization, that if it were in fact lower mortality driving lower fertility, you could imagine a world where lower fertility leads to lower religiosity and that that it's not that lower religiosity necessarily leads to lower fertility, but the lower mortality is the thing driving both of those factors. Right. So my sense is that that all the particulars of the demographic transition are hotly debated. And so anything I say here should be interpreted as me uh, repeating what my sense of what some people think about this, but but not as definitive in any way. 
I have seen this summarized as kind of a five-stage model. Um, we'll link to sort of one, one explanation of, of the model in, in show notes, where stage one, high mortality, high birth rates. Stage two, mortality falls, but birth rates are still mm-hmm. high. And then stage three, mortality is low and birth rates fall. So that suggests, I, I don't know what the chicken and the egg is in this analogy, but uh, this that suggests that the mortality fall is not because of a decline right. in fertility, uh, but that it's caused sort of exogenously by something else. Um, and my sense is that there are a lot of theories about why health improves. Uh, some of it's nutrition. Some of it is like the introduction of the potato, uh, that the potato just like dramatically in- increased crop yields uh, in, in the old world when it was imported from the Western Hemisphere. So that might have extended lifespans and reduced mortality. But I think Blanc in writing this is is sort of intervening in the once you've reduced mortality, what then makes people lower fertility? Because that's not like an obvious step. People have theories other than um, than secularization. A common one is if half your kids die, you're likelier to have eight kids when you really want four kids, but you have to have eight kids to get four kids. Or like you, you need them for farm labor, and as the economy is growing and you get more productive, you need children less for farm labor, stuff like that. And so, I, I, my understanding of the paper is that it's it's offering secularization as a complementary and or alternative theory to those for why you see fertility fall after mortality falls. Yeah, one of, one of the things that I um, I love about uh, economic history papers is just the random small facts inside of them. Like for instance, they called condoms English riding coats, which was, that was a wild, it's <laughs> a wild random fact in this paper. <laughs> You're the person that that was included in this paper for. I was like, I can, <laughs> I'm willing to stipulate, I will question a lot of historical assumptions in this paper, but the idea that the Catholic Church was opposed to contraception in the 18th century, I will just let it, like, I'll ride that on faith. <laughs> I will file that under T for truth. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the other thing that's interesting to me too is just how, um, if you buy this, is this theory that he's proposing how much power these cultural institutions had over extremely private interactions because what they're talking about is like not just like whether or not someone like has a condom but like whether or not they're like pulling out using like the pull out method in order to reduce the fertility rate of people like that the catholic church had that much cultural cachet to kind of govern those individual interactions that like no one would ever know about is like really interesting and i think that like it is it is i i i think that that's why i'm not sure i fully buy this theory because it feels like that's a very very strong claim to be making that like there are a bunch of people who were like what uh, their preferences were to have fewer children um but that uh they were not doing that because like they felt like the um catholic church had made marriage something that was about procreation and that it was sinful in order to not do that that like that seems like a really fast shift to be happening um so that was something that was interesting to me and the other thing that like this that really brought up for me is like today uh today we're talking a lot about low fertility rates in uh western nations all the time as like a, a big concern that some economists have for various reasons not the great replacement reasons of the right wing but um mostly because you know it is more people means that you get um you know more ideas, more technological flourishing. The number of scientists that you need to um, have a new innovation has been rising over the years, which is like concerning because we want more innovation. We want more technological progress. But we're having in um, developed nations fewer and fewer children. And like, I'm pretty sure there's like 
very few countries that are now actually achieving um, even replacement rate fertility levels in the entire world, let alone in the developed world, which I don't think any country has, is achieving replacement levels of fertility. And obviously in the short run, this isn't like a huge problem because like you could just allow for more immigration and you could get a lot of those, the benefits of increased population boom. But like the whole world is having a fertility problem as they enter into development. Seems concerning to me if just like humans just stop like having children. <laughs> um, that doesn't seem like good or a, a good future that we're going to have. So I think that's like interesting to think about the demographic transition we're going through right now and how and whether that has like cultural implications of what's going on. If, if you buy this paper as being a very strong thesis, is there some cultural reason this is happening? I'm like more on the side. There's like economic reasons for this occurring, but I, I am very intrigued by this. I mean, I would caution against comparative, like like strong and comparative formulation of the paper because it like the author does a very good job of situating this in a way that is both like very important and very limited because the question of why France 100 years before everybody else is like a really key question here. But it also is something that is by definition going to apply only to France. Like if you assume that the rest of the world had the demographic transition at around the same time as they had the Industrial Revolution, like there's probably a different set of factors there that might be more broadly applicable and that something weird just happened in France that allowed this to happen earlier without the suite of industrialization. So I would be less, I think, I mean, concerned about that just because it seems to be the case that like France lost faith in the Catholic Church's ability to tell it what to do earlier than everybody else. And that had some interesting implications in things that turn out to be really like world historically relevant, um, both the demographic transition and I don't know, the revolution. But that like that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, in a secularizing world where we also have like where we're also beginning to kind of run out the benefits of the demographic transition that we are now going to be, that those two traits are going to like chase each other into oblivion and we're going to have the heat death of the universe on planet Earth. <laughs> definitely. Definitely not the heat death of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, as, as someone who like finds the French Revolution fascinating, I, I also feel like I understand the revolution mm -hmm. a little better after this paper um, that... Since I think the refractory priest thing, it's a cool variable, but he's using it as a proxy. The idea is not that these priests made this decision and that, like, that itself caused these changes in fertility, since he's looking at fertility even before the revolution. The idea is that there was this sort of broad secularization trend and move against the church as a, a font of authority that was happening decades before the revolution started. And and some of the details he has in there, one variable he includes is the number of people in an area who uh, subscribe to the Encyclopédie, uh, which is uh, Diderot's um, sort of Enlightenment journal of ideas. Um, and so the idea is that if more people subscribe and read that, that's a more like Enlightenment-friendly, anti-clerical part of France. And yeah, I think it just sort of, uh, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of historical literature that, that makes this point as well. But uh, solidifies that there were these big cultural changes happening in France decades before the shit hit the fan. As long as we're talking about like super interesting like historical data inputs here, it really should not go unremarked that the fertility data in this paper is based like not on censuses, which like obviously that would like be super reliable if they existed. But like you don't necessarily uh -huh. have 
censuses at the birth of the modern era, but from crowdsourced genealogies derived from parish records on a French web- uh, on a website that like millions of French people have uploaded and like you know scrutinized the OCR to make sure that it comports with their family records, which is um, fascinating and also something that could literally only happen in research on Western Europe. <laughs> and it's just like it's wild to me to see that um, as someone who like you know, can't get more than a couple of generations back in my own family history for, like, genocide reasons. (laughs) Um, That, like, it's great that that can now be mined to contribute to human understanding, but it also is, like, yet another way in which our understanding of history is going to continue to be Eurocentric simply because we don't necessarily have the depth of knowledge for the rest of the world. Yeah, we we only really had um, England and, and Wales for this because they have pretty significant parish records that begin before... Um, I think like the like the 15th century or something like that. And so it, it, this is like pretty, people have been really confused by what happened in France just because they don't have similar parish records. And one of the interesting things about this paper is just that if, if France had continued along the England and Wales trajectory, it would have like 250 million people today, which is just like <laughs> too many French people in my opinion. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Dara. I think it's like, it is interesting because I mean, a lot of this conversation or a lot of this research is like has to be concentrated in places where we have this research. I wonder if it's possible with the increases in genetic research that we're able to be doing that we might be able to map more of what happened genealogically across the entire world. But yeah, I'm I'm not super optimistic. Spoken like someone who has not talked to an Ashkenazi Jew about their experiences with 23andMe, which <laughs> will to this day ping anytime any other Ashkenazi Jew lo- like uploads their genome and tell me I have a third cousin because <laughs> that's what happens when you have a diasporic but also inbred population. <laughs> Yeah, I I did twenty three and Me and learned that I have I have no uh, heritage that is socially acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has different experiences on that website. Yeah, no, it's it's a journey. Anyway, now that we're we're all talking about our DNA and how many French people there ought to be in the world, <laughs> I feel like we should probably wrap up. Look, Jerusalem has managed to like keep her Twitter mentions from being taken up by rent control opponents. They're now just going to be taken up by the entire nation of France. Yeah, well, I welcome your hatred. Well, thank you to, to Vox's Jerusalem Demsis and, and ProPublica's Darlin for joining the panel and maligning France. The Weeds is produced by Sophie Lalonde. Livy Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. You can get even more Weeds content by signing up for our newsletter. Go to vox.com slash weedsletter. We will be back in your feeds this Friday with the second episode in our special series, America's Public Health Experiment. This week, Dara will explore two agencies that went from quietly broken to loudly broken during the pandemic, uh, the U.S. Postal Service and USCIS, or the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. So we will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. 